Well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. I want to welcome those of you who may be joining us online or maybe from one of our campuses. Maybe you are in Somerville or West Ashley or North Charleston this morning. Glad that we can all be one family, even if we're in different places. So let's show some love to the production team and the tech team who make it all happen. <laughs> Grateful for you guys. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know we've been in a series called Christmas at Seacoast. Just realized I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Adam Martin, <laughs> part of the team here. It's probably a slide behind me. It's all right. But if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in Christmas at Seacoast, where we're kind of looking at the real meaning of the season, what that means to us as we move towards the birth of Jesus. And if you know anything about me, you know that I like to be prepared. I like to be prepared, especially when I speak. And so, somebody says, amen. <laughs> and so typically I like to have at least a couple of weeks to study, a couple of weeks to write. For me, prepping a message, I like it to be about a month-long process. For this message, I've had one week. So we're going to see how it goes together, all right? Last Sunday, I sat down. I like this crowd. <laughs> you guys come back next service. Last Sunday, I sat down at a table with Pastor Greg. I asked him how he was doing. We talked for a few minutes, and then he said, hey, who's speaking next weekend? And I was a little bit confused because I was pretty sure he was. <laughs> but he looked so genuinely curious that I thought, well, maybe he's not. And so we looked at the calendar. I said, Pastor Greg, it looks like you're up next weekend. And you know those moments where you know you've given the right answer, but the person you gave it to just looks at you? with that look that says everything and nothing at the same time. It's one of those moments. And I could read between the lines. I knew it wasn't going to be Pastor Greg who was speaking this weekend. It's going to be me. And so we talked for a few minutes about this. And I, you know, for me, I, I thought about the service that we're going to have in a couple of weeks around Christmas Eve, where Pastor Josh Surratt is going to bring us an incredible message Bring a friend, bring a neighbor. You're going to love it. I hope you'll join us. But he's going to call that message right place, right time. Based on how this all landed last weekend, I'm calling this message wrong place, wrong time. <laughs> That's where we are. And so it was one of those moments where I kind of sensed God saying to me, hey, Adam, you know how you're always encouraging people to trust me, even in difficult circumstances where they feel in over their heads? We're going to do that with you this week. And you're going to love it. It's going to be great. And stop complaining because I made the world in seven days. So I have learned my lesson, however. I'm just not going to ask Pastor Greg how he's doing anymore. And then I can avoid this. So while it's true, I didn't have a lot of prep time. Not at least the prep time I might like. I am excited about this message because I love this time of year. Everyone seems just a little bit more open to these conversations this time of year. So today, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Now, it's only Matthew and Luke who record Jesus's birth because Mark starts out his gospel with Jesus's ministry. And John goes all the way back to creation. And Luke is the one that you're most familiar with because that's the one that we hear in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And the reason they didn't use Matthew's version is because he kicks it off with the genealogy of Jesus. Riveting stuff. He gives us 17 verses of names that none of us can pronounce very well. 
It's a passage that most people avoid, honestly. And that's where we're going to spend a little bit of time today. Now, I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to do it very quickly just to give you an idea of what we're dealing with. And so here's the passage that we've all been avoiding for years. You ready? All right. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Take a breath. Oh, we're not done. I know you want to be done. We're not even close to done. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. So here you've got it. Here you have. This is how we get from Abraham to the son of God. Now, full disclosure here. If you read Luke's version of this, you're going to see some different names. And there there are very good reasons for that. But the skeptics will tell you this is what makes the Bible flawed and unreliable, which is just not true. Unfortunately, they just they don't have the cultural context in mind as they're reading the two versions. So you can either trust me on this or you can take a picture of this link and go look at it later. There are three reasons why these two are different. So don't look at it now because you'll miss what I'm about to share with you. But there are three very good reasons why the two are different. Now, whenever I see passages like this, it makes me ask the question, why? Why is it there? Like, It's not there for no good reason, right? But why does Matthew take the time to account for every generation leading up to Jesus? And to be fair, there's there's more here than I have time to get into today. There's some pretty amazing stuff in these 17 verses. But I believe that it's passages like this that can actually be the most comforting and encouraging to us if we'll just spend a little bit of time with them. And so from the genealogy of Jesus, we learn three things. We learn that Jesus is who he claimed to be. We learn that Jesus knows what it's like to have a crazy family. And we learn that Jesus knows what it takes to change. Though that's going to be our outline for today. So let's jump in to the first point. The first reason Matthew does the work to list the, the genealogy is to show us that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, notice Matthew did not start off his gospel with once upon a time. 
He didn't start off his gospel with long ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's not how he kicked things off. And that's because the gospel is not a good story. It's good news. In fact, some of you may know that's what the word gospel means. Good news. It was commonly used as a way of announcing historical, actual historical events that were seen as good. In fact, we've got a transcription. I mean, I don't personally have it, but archaeologists have it. Like a, we've got an inscription, excuse me, an inscription of when Caesar Augustus was born. This is basically his birth announcement. It says the gospel of the coronation of Caesar Augustus. That's how this word was used. And in the last few years, we've seen a new term emerge, especially among journalists. When it comes to fact checking, it's called bringing receipts. When someone makes a claim, another person might bring receipts on them, meaning they're going to bring outside indisputable information that either confirms or denies those claims. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing here. He's bringing receipts. He's bringing receipts. He's inviting anyone who might doubt that Jesus is the promised Messiah to follow the lineage all the way back to David and then to Abraham. He's showing us that Jesus Christ fulfills every prophecy that was ever written about the Messiah. And he's inviting all of this was his way of saying, if you're going to reject Jesus as the son of God, then you're going to have to do it on some other basis. This one won't work. Matthew's telling us here in these 17 verses that this is not a well-constructed story just to support the claims of Jesus. He's telling us that this is historically valid information that anyone at the time could have disputed if it weren't true. And all of it points to a single conclusion, and that is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So I do want to acknowledge this, however, I, I realize that 2000 years later, this doesn't get it done for a lot of people. Looking at the genealogy of Jesus does not convince them that Jesus is actually the son of God. I get it. So let me offer you a different perspective. If Matthew wanted to write a compelling story to convince us that Jesus was actually the Messiah, then he did a terrible job. He and all of the New Testament writers, in fact, did a terrible job because he included things here that would have immediately discredited his work. Within the genealogy, we also see the names of four women who at the time their word would not have been considered reliable, wouldn't even have been admissible in court. It's not fair. It's not right. It's unfortunately just how things were then. And thankfully, they're a bit different now. But not only did he include four women here, he included women like Tamar, who committed incest and Rahab, who was a prostitute and Ruth, who was a foreigner. And Bathsheba, who had her life turned upside down by adultery. If Matthew wanted to sell us on the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, he would never have done it like this. Because nobody would have been compelled by this. No one would have believed it. So why then did he do it? Well, it turns out Matthew wasn't trying to compel anybody to believe anything. You see, before Matthew was a disciple and a gospel writer, he was a tax collector, which meant he would have been very good at record keeping. And that's all he was trying to do here. He wanted to keep an accurate historical record 
of what happened from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus. And to take it a step further, if God wanted to create a compelling story about his son, Jesus, then why would he have used a tax collector to record it? He wouldn't have been popular or trustworthy with any of the Jewish people. He wouldn't. And, and, and the only thing that would have done was create more doubt around who Jesus actually was. And so why does this matter to any of us? I mean, what's the big deal? Why does it matter? Well, it forces us to ask ourselves some important questions. It forces us to pause and reflect on what we really believe, which is something that the greatest minds in history have always known was important. They knew they understood the value of self-examination, something we should all do. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Augustine said, Lord, let me know myself. And Ice Cube said, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> I mean, seems like they're in the same category. Maybe, just maybe, you have arrived at yet another Christmas with some doubts about who God is. Is he really there? Is he really good? Does he really care about me? Is his son Jesus who he claimed to be? All fair questions. And God's not afraid of any of them. Because if the first step away from God is to doubt him, then it only makes sense that the first step back towards God is to doubt your doubts. I mean, think about it. Like, why should our skepticism about God be the only thing that is exempt from doubt? So my encouragement to you this Christmas would be doubt your doubts. Maybe Jesus is the son of God. Maybe Jesus is the promised Messiah. Maybe Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. In this genealogy, Matthew offers some evidence that hundreds of thousands of people could have disputed if it weren't true. But if it is true, then we may need to celebrate Christmas in a whole different way this year. Now, the second thing that we learn from this passage is that Jesus knows what it's like to have a crazy family. I know that all of us think we have some level of craziness in our family. I mean, let's just get it out there right here and at the campuses and online in the chat. How many of you say your family's a little bit crazy? Anybody? Yeah. How many of you would say the person sitting beside you has a crazy family? I don't know why more hands go up there, but they do. Well, let's just take a look. Let's take a look at the family line of Jesus. I mean, there are some heroes of the faith here. Let's be fair. There's Abraham and David and Hezekiah, and they were great. They did some great things, but they also made some terrible choices, choices that ended up hurting themselves and hurting those around them. But the rest of these people, they lost their ever loving minds. They went crazy in this bunch. We've got liars, looters, dissenters, traitors, adulterers, murderers. And in the off chance that your family looks just as crazy as this one, at least your family's craziness didn't get recorded in the most popular book to ever be written. We can celebrate that. The point is, if you think your family's a little bit crazy, Jesus gets it. 
He understands. And what's important for us to take away from this is that despite all of the madness, God showed up. God showed up in a family line that I'm sure at times looked irredeemable. God's love showed up in the person of Jesus. Some of us need to hear that today. We need to know that. In families where we've experienced tremendous pain, God can still show up. God can still break through. Where there's been nothing but disappointment and discouragement, God can still break, fo break forth and bring hope and healing. This tends to be the time of year when my schedule gets crazy. I mean, it goes bananas because everyone wants to come in for counseling because they know they're about to spend time with the people who trigger them the most. So they want to come in and get it sorted out. Some of us, we get triggered by the trauma that we've experienced in our families. And if that's you, I want you to hear me say this. I am sorry. That should not have happened. You did not deserve that. And it's important that you remember what this season points to. That hope showed up in a pretty messy family. And that pain doesn't need to be the end of your story. Some of us get triggered because we've picked up some irrational beliefs about ourselves and about those around us. And we know that irrational beliefs drive us towards irrational behaviors. Some of us get triggered because we're still carrying around some things we were never meant to carry. And if I could say one thing to this group, that if you want to give yourself a gift this Christmas, forgive somebody. Give yourself a gift this Christmas and forgive somebody. It may be time to let go of the pain that you've been carrying around. A few chapters after this genealogy, Matthew describes how Jesus called some of the disciples. He says this in Matthew 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting their net into a lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, two chapters after this is the first time we see the Lord's Prayer. Matthew writes it like this. In fact, Why don't we all say it together? We don't do this very often, but let's all hear the campuses and online. Let's just do it together. We'll have it on the screen for you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what do these two passages have to do with each other? What do they have to do with each other? Well, they share one very important word. 
In Matthew 6, we read, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The Greek word for forgive here is atheomene. What's interesting is that this is the very same word used in Matthew 4 when it says that Jesus, Jesus's disciples left their nets and left their boat. And so the two together give us a very powerful picture of what it looks like to forgive. It means to leave something behind and carry it no further. Most of the emotional pain that we've experienced in our lives, it stems from unmet expectations in our closest relationships. And can you imagine what it would be like to finally release that? Can you imagine what it would be like to lay that down and offer forgiveness even where it isn't deserved? Can you imagine what it would be like to carry that pain no further? To do that kind of forgiveness requires some careful steps. And it might surprise you, but denial is not one of them. Denial doesn't work. Pretending you weren't hurt just forces you to continue hurting alone. That's all it does. So the first step after recognizing we've been hurt, the first step towards real forgiveness is this. We need to recognize that we have been forgiven. We need to recognize that we have been forgiven. Colossians 3 reminds us that we should bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. When we keep in mind just how much we've been forgiven, forgiveness comes just a little bit easier towards others. The second step towards real forgiveness is recognize not only the pain of your past, but also the pain of their past. Keep in mind that nobody ever hurt anybody who wasn't also hurt themselves. Remember your parents, they were somebody's kids too, and they may not have gotten what they needed. And it may not be your parents who have hurt you, but the idea applies universally. It's important that we remember that everyone we meet is often fighting a battle we know nothing about. In fact, my, my wife said to me one time, I'll never forget it. She said these words, be careful not to judge someone else's story when you've only read a couple of chapters. That's good advice. And please know that none of this, none of what I'm saying is meant to excuse any kind of mistreatment that you experienced. But it may help to explain it just a little bit. And it may help stir up just enough empathy so that the forgiveness process can begin. The next step towards real forgiveness is to recognize that forgiveness is a commitment. You know that old adage, forgive and forget? That's garbage. I don't, it doesn't work. Honestly, it doesn't work. Our brains are not wired for it to work that way. When we experience pain, Neuro pathways are worn into our minds. You can't just reverse that in an instant. So a lot of times when people come into my office and they're like, I've forgiven them. I've forgotten that. I'm thinking, okay, we've got work to do. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. The Greek word aphiomi was often used as a financial term. It's why we see the language in the Lord's prayer around forgiving debts. 
And it creates a strong reminder for us of how forgiveness actually works. Because how do you pay off a debt? We do it in installments. You make payments on the debt until it's gone. And when we commit to forgiveness, we're committing to making payments every time that offense comes to mind. Each time we recall the offense, we make a payment by reminding ourselves that we also have been forgiven, that they also have pain, and that we have committed to releasing the debt that is owed to us. And the great thing about paying off a debt is that eventually you're free. The last step towards real forgiveness is recognize that forgiveness breaks the cycle. As we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we can see some really high highs and some really low lows. But his arrival also marked a point in time when everything changed. You see, when forgiveness showed up in the person of Jesus, things began to change forever. And do you know that you you get to decide just how much further down the line the dysfunction goes in your family. If, if there are some things you don't want to pass on, then forgiveness is the way to break that cycle. And I realize I have just made something sound very simple. That's not. It's, not, it, it's simple. It's just not easy. And you may actually need to meet with somebody who can help you walk through this process so that you can forgive in the way you've been forgiven. There's no shame in that. The last thing we learn from this passage in Matthew is that Jesus knows what it takes for things to change. I don't know where each of you stands on Santa Claus and don't freak out. I'm not about to ruin anything, but just keep in mind that once a year, a large part of the world's population is filled with hope that someone will show up in the most unlikely way with a gift that brings joy. And as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, that's exactly what happened. At one point in time, someone showed up in the most unlikely way with a gift that would restore our joy forever. And when he arrived, he arrived in Bethlehem. In Hebrew, it's Bethlehem. It was a small town. It, it means house of bread. And it was a small town that was known for its bread and its bakeries. But little did they know just how fitting the name would be. Because in John chapter 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And in Luke's gospel, we're reminded on the night before his death, as Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body broken for you. These were not casual metaphors because he knew that his audience would have been familiar with something that was written 500 years earlier. But you, Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. You see, every time that Jesus described himself as bread, 
It was his way of pointing to something that they were familiar with. It was his way of saying, you've been looking for the Messiah. You've been looking for someone who would come and establish your value and worth and peace as a nation. And I am that Messiah. So just as Bethlehem's true meaning and worth can only really be seen through Jesus. So our true meaning and worth will only ever be found in the one who came to be broken as bread for us. Look to anything else. You look to anything else in this world to give you meaning, and it will fail to give you the same sense of worth and value you were meant to enjoy. This is where Christianity separates itself from all other world religions. In nearly every religion, there was a prophet or a guide who says that they came to help us find God. The founders of every other major religion would claim, I am the prophet who came to help you find God. But Jesus said, I am the God who came to find you. In the 1920s, there was a series of books that began to emerge about a detective. His name was Lord Peter Whimsey. They were written by a woman named Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the first women to go to Oxford. Lord Peter was an aristocratic detective who was really good at solving mysteries, but he was also pretty lonely and a bit depressed because he was so devoted to his work. And in the middle of the series, we see a new character introduced. Her name was Harriet Vane. Harriet was a tall, not particularly attractive woman who also happened to be one of the first women to go to Oxford and also happened to be a writer of detective fiction novels. And Harriet and Peter fell in love and went on to solve great mysteries together in the subsequent books. Now, what's happening here? Well, it would appear that the author looked at the world she created and the character she created and saw his pain and loneliness. And so she wrote herself into the story to save him. God has done quite the same thing for you and me. God looked into our world as the author, the one who made it. And he saw us destroying ourselves. And so he wrote himself into the story in the person of Jesus. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. We're celebrating that Jesus showed up in our world through a crazy family line. Even when several generations made it look like God couldn't possibly accomplish his greater purpose, he did. We're celebrating that Jesus showed up in our world knowing only a tremendous sacrifice would set us free. And even when the sacrifice meant giving up his only son, God did. And so what is the comfort we can take from a passage like this? Well, if these are the names that are found in the line leading up to Jesus, then certainly our names can be found in those that lead from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. Grateful that you would come. Write yourself into this story that we might be set free. That at great cost to yourself, 
you would pay a price, a debt we could never repay. That we might live as forgiven people and show us what it's like to forgive others. Pray that you give us the courage to walk that out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for the next few minutes, we want to give you guys just an opportunity to respond, to ask two questions to yourself. God, what are you saying to me? What am I going to do with that? For some of you, it may be time to start the forgiveness process with somebody who's hurt you. This may be the gift that you can give yourself this Christmas. If that's you, I want to encourage you, go to a cross this morning, write down on a piece of paper the name or the names of the people that you want to forgive. And then I want you to write down somebody you'll share this with so they can continue to encourage you to make payments as that offense comes to mind until finally you've released that debt. For some of you, maybe today is the day that you want to start doubting your doubts. Maybe you're ready to be as skeptical about your doubt as you have been about God. If that's you, I'd encourage you to come and light a candle. And as you do, pray that God would bring you his light so that you might see him clearly, see what is true about him. And there may be some of you today who are ready to take that step and surrender your life to God. You're ready to receive the gift that truly does restore our joy. If that's you, then just come and ask someone on our prayer team pray over you. That you could take that first step and they'll, they'll encourage you on how you might be able to take others to grow in your faith. I also want to invite you to come and celebrate communion. To give thanks that Jesus would allow himself to be the bread of life broken for us. And allow his blood to be shed that we might be free from sin forever. Don't need to be a member of Seacoast, just a member of the body of Christ. But come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then finally, I'd encourage us all to respond together by standing and singing and worshiping the God who came to find us. Let's respond together.